Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. Since we're still a relatively new podcast, I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website at acton.org, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode and find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Research Associate and Librarian here at Acton. Uh, Today, we will discuss the happenings with Jewish students at Barnard College. But first, I want to go to New York City and an event that I only didn't go to this year. I'm I'm usually there every year. And of course, that's the Met Gala. Um, You you, you can just tell that uh, I'm that kind of fashion forward person who uh, wants to dress up like RoboCop at uh, $30,000 a ticket. Uh, But of course, the big story to come out of it was Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez attends the Met Gala this year wearing a white dress that on the back written in text uh, that seemed to evoke the cows from Chick-fil-A writing on the bags, uh, eat more chicken. But this one said, tax the rich. And look, there's no shortage out there of uh, other podcasts and other sources that are talking about what AOC did. And I, I don't quite want to be that podcast. Um, I don't think that's right for us. But there, there was something else that, that struck me beyond what I thought was just a delightful observation from Megan McArdle uh, at The Washington Post, who uh, noted that the Met Gala is essentially a tax shelter. You write a $30,000 check to the Met for this big party dinner that you can then write off on your taxes. So AOC wore a dress saying tax the rich to a tax shelter, which is something interesting in and of its own right. But what, what struck me was America predominantly has been obsessed with its original sin of race in a way that you know British society... Um, class is its first original sin. You, you get the, the sociologist Warner Sombart asking the question, why is there no socialism in America? And fundamentally, the answer to that is because we didn't have a feudal society. But I, I was struck by something of the elites of our society, um, these people who are attending the Met Gala, are all there making these kinds of radical chic poses. Uh, And I'm not the first one to observe this, but how saddened I was that Tom Wolfe is no longer with us and cannot write about what we observed at the Met Gala in the way he wrote about uh, um, Leonard Bernstein's party uh, for New York Magazine back in the day. Uh, But you have them contrasted with all of the help, all the people working there who are wearing masks. Uh, We've seen other examples of this. Uh, Of course, the Emmys happened last night. Nobody of the elite that are gathered there wearing masks. And the uh, mayor of San Francisco was seen over the weekend at uh, a party and offered up the explanation that more or less, I was feeling the spirit and I wasn't thinking about a mask. But nonetheless, you have this viral video going around Twitter of a two-year-old in New York at a school that they're desperately trying to pull the mask over the person's face. Don't want to go full mask war here. But what stood out to me is, one, the clear hypocrisy. Right. The the of the way that this elite group is acting versus the way that we're all in the hoi polloi told that we're supposed to act. And I'm wondering if this class distinction is becoming a more pronounced part of our American experience. Sam, am I just seeing things that aren't there? Well, I think there's a lot of things going on when it comes to this type of phenomena. One phenomenon which I think is um, this is expressive of is the fact that the idea that the leaders of the left, broadly speaking, in the United States today, have anything to do with blue-collar America is a myth that needs to be buried very, very quickly because it's hard to imagine a group of people who are more detached from, say, 
I don't know, the Rust Belt of America or the Midwest, or even more significantly, who don't care that they're viewed this way or seen this way or apparently have no concern that there is this gap between what they are insisting the rest of America does and the way that, that, that they behave. But that shift has been going on for quite some time, right? So if you look, for example, at who are the people who are most likely to vote for the Democratic Party, it's billionaires. Billionaires are the <laughs> one of the most reliable constituencies now uh, for the Democratic Party. So there is a sort of class thing that's working its way into this, but it's not quite class in the sense that that exists in Britain. It's a type of class that's defined at least on one level by wealth, but it's also defined by having certain opinions. So it ties in, I think, to the woke phenomena. It ties into what's going on in academia with the silencing of particular voices. It ties into broad trends that are happening on the right and the left when it comes to politics and different demographic groups. So uh, it's not surprising, I think, that so many people who describe themselves as progressive and who say that they're concerned about those who are marginalized, et cetera, establish one rule for themselves and one rule for everyone else. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be part of American politics for a while. The thing about hypocrisy, of course, is that people are usually ashamed when it is pointed out to them, when it's pointed out that you're behaving in a way that's inconsistent with what you say. It's supposed to be the tribute that virtue pays to vice. Correct. Or the vice pays to virtue. Exactly. But what's, I think, most troubling is that the people who are behaving this way exhibit no sense that they are behaving in a hypocritical way. That, I think, is disturbing because it tells us that the basic moral sense that would alert people to these things has completely disappeared or been nullified uh, in these, these types of social circles in which virtue signaling is far more important than actually trying to live a virtuous life. So it's very bad because these are people who, in many respects, for better and worse, for worse, set the cultural tone of a lot of what you might call high culture, etc., in the United States, whether we like it or not. And the fact that they're behaving in this way, I think, suggests that there's something deeply rotten morally speaking, culturally speaking, in that segment of society. So it's very, I'm, I'm very, it's very, it's very negative thing. There's very little, very little I can say that, that makes it sound, there's some sort of justification for it or there's some yeah. type of explanation for it because I think the only explanation is a very bad one. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to the hypocrisy stuff, I guess what has bothered me in the way that there seems to be just a number of people who are so obsessed about being, I can't remember where I heard this, but I just think it's a fantastic way of putting it, being truffle swines for hypocrisy. Uh, just absolutely <laughs> digging through the muck, trying to find that example of hypocrisy and thinking that the hypocrisy is the truly bad part about it. Right. And and if you'll pardon this, uh, this reference, it actually it reminded me of a video clip I saw over the weekend um, as uh, everybody online has been sharing what their favorite jokes are from the great comedian Norm Macdonald, who passed away last week. And this was a clip from him on uh, comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, where. Uh, he asks in that kind of um, just truly Norm Macdonald way if this is a few years ago, if if what Bill Cosby legally was going through was was going to hurt his reputation. And Jerry says the obvious answer. Yes. And he says, you know, the other the comedian Patton Oswalt told me that, um, you know, it, he thinks the hypocrisy is the worst part about it. But but I disagreed. And Seinfeld's like, oh, yeah, you did. And he's like, yeah, I, I think the raping is the worst part. 
Um, it's like we we completely overlook that obvious point to be obsessed with the hypocrisy part of it. Um, and I, I I can't help but think that this is just because it's connected to that kind of upper echelon elite that we become then more obsessed about the hypocrisy almost for our entertainment value than about what is actually going on there, which I think is what Sam was talking about, that there seems to be a deep cultural rot that has taken place, that every society will have an elite, but our society has one that now seems more frivolous than I think we would want or that I I think a free and virtuous society can actually sustain. Well, another thing to add there, Eric, is that I think our understanding of what constitutes elite is something that we need to be reflecting upon as well because in one sense, elite means those who are more influential than others who may be a minority numerically but nonetheless exert enormous influence for better or worse. And every society has those, right? There's no there's no getting around that. There are people who exert more influence than others. Even in the most democratic societies, that's the case. But there's another way in which we understand the word elite in the sense of the person who is cultivating all their faculties, their intellectual faculties, their moral faculties, who in other words are trying to cultivate a life of virtue for love of good, truth, and beauty for its own sake. And anyone can do that, right? There's a sense in which that's accessible to anyone most of the time. And there's a disjunct between that conception of elite, which is a much more classical, much more, I guess, um, religious, Christian understanding of what constitutes excellence, as opposed to this other understanding of elite, which is much more about who exerts more influence than others in a given society. And (laughs) the, the political elite at present don't show much sign of being interested in being excellent in this other deeper, longer sense of the word that when we use the word elite. One of the interesting things is what sort of counts for elite in the United States. And I think that the the Met Gala and sort of the guest list illustrates that what, what, what commonly passes for the elite is the famous or the infamous. Um, and that the other, the other avenue is a sort of credentialing. And this is, and this is university degrees. This is, you know, being housed in a prestigious institution and that is often then leveraged for this fame. And this is, I think, the the the, the interesting thing about um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is that she's a House member in a solidly Democratic district. Mm-hmm. She has no history of major legislative accomplishments. She, in fact, the the first thing that she's known for is is getting Amazon to pull out of her district. Um, I think before she was even in the house, um, Amazon had had moved, <clears throat> made plans to, or aborted plans mm-hmm. to make, uh, make that uh, a key part of their, of their business, uh, one of their headquarters. And even, even the dress itself is tied into, I mean, this phrase tax the rich is also part of her merchandising line. Yes. This is something mm-hmm. that she uses to fund her campaign. So it's it's even this as an advertisement. Um, and it strikes me as Yuval Levin talks about this, is that we have a tendency of elites given places of responsibility that use those places of responsibility not as a point from which to do service to, but as a platform for themselves and for their own self-aggrandizement, their own fame. And as a result, it sort of strip mines these institutions of the sort of cultural capital that they've accumulated and, um, and, reduces, and reduces them uh, in public esteem. And, that's, and that's, that's the other very dangerous sort of thing about this. And this is not about tax policy. This is about, I mean, 
And this is this is the tragic thing is, you know, a lot of people are reacting about this and they're coming back with numbers of, oh, the rich actually pay this. And it's like, I don't think this is fundamentally for her about that. There are ways as a legislature, as a legislator, that you can influence tax policy um, at at the catwalk on the Met is not that place. The. The the point, too, that about, you know, who, who is credentialed to be a part of the elite, I think one can make a compelling argument that, you know, uh, despite the portrayal of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as this um, just representative of the working class, I mean, the biography part that's always featured is that she was a, a bartender, um, but prior to that had attended Boston University which, while not being an Ivy League school, is still a very good school. Uh, And she had interned for Senator Ted Kennedy. Um, These are the kind of things that people who are on that elite track do. The credentialing that you talked about with the, you know, there's a difference between going to Boston University and going to Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, which is a school at which you can get a college degree that will allow you to enter the, you know, the the realm of society with the higher earning potential that is associated with a college degree. But a school like Boston University is still going to open more doors to you than even, you know, like tiny Millican University where I went. What I was thinking as you're talking about that, Dan, of the the concept, if you're familiar with um, uh, from this guy, Peter Turchin, of elite overproduction and being one of the problems plaguing our society right now, that our our society, in part because of the credentialing you talked about, um, the way that that is supposed to be the kind of gateway into the the elite strata of of our world, is that it's producing too many potential members of that elite class relative to the ability of the existing structures to absorb them in as elites. Uh, So you get this kind of bizarro conflict that exists between them because there's just too many potential members of that elite society. And I think that gets back to saying what I I was saying before. Which is that the we're going to have an elite, right? I mean, there's going to be an elite of any society. It's it's in the same way that the previous framing of the same kind of people who would put tax the rich on a dress they wore to a gala was to talk about the 99% versus the 1%. There'll always be a 1%. Even if you knock the people who are currently in the 1% down a few pegs, it's just simple math. You're going to divide it up into a 99% and a 1%. There will always be an elite by some definition. How did we get to this point where the definition that I think Dan pointed out quite ably, that you know, it's, it's, it, the currency is fame or infamy? I mean, look at the other people who were at the Met Gala, right? You know, it's, it's Kim Kardashian, um, not people who are civic leaders, social leaders, anything like that, not an aristocracy in the sense that we would have thought about it a few hundred years ago, but it is just a much more frivolous elite. How did we get to that point where it is so hollowed out and meaningless, and can we do anything about that? Well, I have a a couple of thoughts. Uh, I'd like to go back to something you said before about AOC's lack of legislative legislative achievement. That's a phenomenon I think you find across the political spectrum now when it comes to a good number of, uh, for example, federal legislators who we see on television all the time. But when you look at what they've actually done in terms of actually passing or sponsoring legislation, etc., you find that it's a pretty poor record. And it was once explained to me that, uh, of course, these people are also among the most prodigious fundraisers for their parties and for their own re-election campaigns. But no one takes them particularly seriously when it comes to uh, the actual actual job of being a legislator. The counterpart on on the right right now is Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, who has raised absolute gobs of money, but doesn't even serve on any committees to have the ability to advance legislation. And this, as Sam knows, because he's heard it plenty of times, and I'm sure, Dan, you do as well, that this is part of the the Yuval Levin theme that I bang on about endlessly, that Congress Congress is weak because its members want it to be. So the, the idea that passing legislation or getting things done is 
going to be the metric by which we uh, observe the value of legislators is gone. And we're left with this politics that is primarily about the symbolic and not about the any objective measure of accomplishment. Right. And in terms of your question about um, what do we do about this situation, I think there's a number of things. One is um, our, our – our, our uh, image elite, let's call them that, <clears throat> are pretty good at be clowning themselves. So I've I've noticed that even some liberal commentators have taken to mocking them, to mocking them and, and pointing out the hypocrisy, pointing out the way in which they're they're acting as a sort of branding for themselves. So it's interesting that there has been such a big reaction to this. Another thing, of course, that is reflective of this general t- trend is the continuing plummeting of numbers of people <clears throat> who watch these things, right? So the number of people who watch the Oscars or the Emmys continues to decline because these are freak shows now in which we have unqualified people talking about subjects they know very little about but nonetheless believing it because they are a famous actor or actress or whatever it happens to be that somehow this gives them the capacity to speak about tax policy in some deep, profound way. So in some respects, they've sort of beclowned themselves and that's becoming more and more apparent. But the problem, I think, of course, is that many of the institutions which once played a role in forming people, informing people in terms of virtues, of good habits, uh, the types of things that you would want moral habits and characteristics that you would want in people who go into public life or assume uh, significant positions of responsibility, they're also corrupt in many respects, right? Because religious institutions, I think, in many parts of the country are highly compromised in terms of their ability to speak about anything to do in the public square, right? Because you know, the, because they're compromised by endless sexual scandals, endless financial scandals, as well as the habit of some leaders of these institutions to go out in public and talk about things they clearly know nothing about and not talk about what they're supposed to be talking about, which is the actual content of what they believe to be the ultimate truth about God and reality. Our, our university institutions have, to a certain extent, um, fallen into this, this type of trap as well, whereby the the excellence in knowledge, the excellence in formation of the intellect has gone out the door and it's been replaced in many respects by political correctness, something that's flowed now over into the hard sciences, which we were always told this would never happen to those disciplines, right? But it's happened there as well. And all of a sudden, two plus two is now five. And Right, yeah. right. And we've even had some significant religious leaders say things like that. Two times two can equal five if you want it to, or that's your preference. So, 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 so I think that increasingly what will happen is that a lot of the formation that we, we believe is necessary and important is going to be happening outside those types of institutions, reforming them from the inside. I know people who are involved in that. I'm sure you do as well. That's a worthy enterprise. It's also a very, very long-term enterprise, which I think is good and important, but it's not enough in itself. Let me throw this question out to both of you. So how much of the problem is the degradation of morality and values amongst that elite class being a thing that has happened over time, Uh, which I think there's an element of that that to me is certainly true, but you're welcome to disagree. And how much of that is, is this current situation a result of the rapidity of information at the moment and the kind of rapid transparent progress and transparency that we've achieved really in the internet age, right? I, I always come back to um, you know, a few years ago when you had the great uh, – the, the first salvo of the uh, French-Iranian wars when Sora Bamari writes his Jeremad against David French, sourced back to Drag Queen Story Hour in Sacramento. And that's thousands of miles away from where Saurabh lives in New York. But it, everything feels like it's in our backyard because of the way that social media and the, the, the just the rapid fire pace of information right now brings it right in front of our face. So you could go back to bring it back to our elites. Right. Um, there were certain people with John F. Kennedy who knew that he was a philanderer. 
But that information was not surfaced. The, the press didn't really report about it. There was no, um, you know, gawker. There was no deadspin or publications like that that were happy to print uh, salacious rumors just to get that conversation going. How much of it really is that we've you have this kind of moral devaluing of our elites and how much of it is that may have always existed to some extent, but we're just hyper aware of it now. And we just have not found a way to adjust our brains to dealing with all the information that's coming to us and all the transparency that is bringing this reality that may have already existed right before our eyes. I think it's both. Um, Martin Gurry writes that, writes about this in a great book uh, called Revolt to the Public, in which he sort of chronicles a breakdown in, in confidence of, of institutions, if not if not institutions themselves, that <clears throat> come uh, that the root of it is sort of this internet explosion. And he points to 2011, sort of Arab Spring, at, at the moment when we had all the information in the world available in our pockets when when the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy became a real thing um this is it and part of this is i think that i think there's a serious moral erosion and degradation um and i think i think that that is the product of both the failure of 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 the institutions that have traditionally morally formed people to do so i also think that that's a product of the incentives set up in terms of uh, of fame and an insulation of power from accountability. And I think part of this goes back to we had a revolution in governance at the early part of this uh, of the last century where we instituted basically a regime of experts and administrative agencies, and we lost the classical sort of Republican, small r, understanding of government, of a, a government of citizens, by citizens, to a government by experts. And Walter Lippmann, and this goes back to the very beginnings of sort of uh, – what the actual neoliberalism, as opposed to the the slur that that is uh, used to coat you know anything that speaks positively of of a market economy, is there was this realization that part of this rule by experts, what that meant for democracy, where you're not able as a citizen to evaluate all of the agencies. All of these agencies, in a way, cannot be democratically accountable. So there has to be a way to manage public opinion. And Lippmann wrote this book, Public Opinion, about sort of the responsibility of the media to guide the public in conjunction with this new rule, uh, this new political rule. Because um, there's always, as we've talked about, been, been, been a rule by elites in some senses. Um, but this new political rule by elites had to be managed. And that breaks down with the internet. All of a sudden, everybody can say whatever they want all of the time. Sorry to interrupt, Dan. I was just going to uh, add a historical angle reflection on this uh, since you went back to the uh, progressive era. We've been through things like this before, at least in the history of Western civilization. We've been through things like this before. A good example would be the degree of corruption that had entered, uh, by which I mean moral corruption, financial corruption, that had entered significant parts of the Catholic Church in the lead-up to the Reformation of the early 16th century. And that was followed by lots of terrible things, but it was also followed by and, and in some respects preceded by a reform movement within the Catholic Church. And, of course, then you had the Counter-Reformation, which, you know, really set the church, the Catholic Church back on a, a much more positive, much more outward-looking, much more, uh, let's say, less corrupt, much, much more virtue-focused, much more evangelical type of approach to the world. Another example would be Britain in the last, I guess, 40 years and even into the 1810s, 1820s, where the elites in Britain were highly corrupt. I mean, you would see pictures of um, 
the elite, the aristocratic elite, and even the monarchy, they, they would be uh, unshamedly corrupt in the way they behaved, in the way that they talked, the licentiousness. And this was all quite uh, very well known in British society and was highlighted and mocked. And But what's interesting about that is that that was followed by, what was it followed by? It was followed by the Victorian era, right, which, which is the era in which suddenly there's a very different type of monarchy, a monarchy that's portraying itself as as uh, really there for the people. I'm thinking of people like Queen Victoria, Prince Albert. There's an entire reshaping of the way that the political class operates. You see the emergence of politicians who do seem to have some greater sense of the common good and what's important and the significance of leading morally upright lives. I'm thinking of people like William Gladstone, Disraeli, Lord Acton himself, and it really changed the way that the, the quote-unquote elites acted and behaved uh, for a significant period of time. So my point is that these periods in which elites seem to go down the track of highly disreputable behaviour, behaviour that reflects a disregard and disinterest in the rest of society, even a contempt for the rest of society. The good news is that this is often followed by a shift back in the other direction. It won't be quite like it was was before, but nonetheless it represents some type of positive shift away from some of these things and a return to a certain sense of public responsibility on the part, on the part of people who, for better or worse, are in charge of important parts of public life in America. Yeah, there there is often that pendulum theory uh, right. that, that is quoted of things you know swinging one way and swinging another. But especially after the the last episode of uh, this program that we re- recorded, I, I had heard someone give a presentation later this uh, uh, last Thursday talking about the same idea of uh, linear growth versus exponential growth that we talked about on this program last week. And I, I couldn't help but escape that there was like this insistence in all of it that some of these things were inevitable. And I guess the um, I think Sam is obviously right on the historical record, right, that, you know, these things often are followed by these uh, reformist movements that push back against the problems that existed there. And I, I want I want to subscribe to that. Like I want to subscribe to like that our, as was our past. So shall be our future. Uh, I just worry that these things aren't inevitable. And, you know, what What if the, to, to mess up the metaphor a little bit, rather than the pendulum swinging back and forth the other way, I mean, what if you have the right person at the right time that grabs the pendulum and stops it in a certain place and you get some kind of quasi-authoritarianism that doesn't let the pendulum swing either way, but nonetheless enforces one kind of state on society that creates its own problems. I just, I, I it, right. it find it hard to, it just these days, I just find it hard to subscribe to that, um, that belief that like, oh, this is cyclical. And as a result, we can look for this kind of reformation movement when I guess in my more optimistic states, I think I can see the indicators of it, but in my less optimistic states, it is like it just seems like it's down and down and down. Well, you know, a good example of the type of person you're talking about, uh, Eric, is Napoleon. Right. Right. So right. he brings the revolution to an end, and this is a period. He brings a, a a period of the revolution which was highly corrupt, highly corrupt. I mean, I don't mean just. Um, the whole earlier period where they were guillotining lots of people and there's endless war. But by the by the late 1790s, the people leading France at the time are highly corrupt in, in financial ways, sexual ways, all these sorts of things. And Napoleon brings this all to an end. And he does it by bringing uh, a high, uh, you know, a, a regime that becomes more and more authoritarian over time and, uh, and that is the historical trajectory that that took. So I'm not saying it's inevitable. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not. I, I don't believe in inevitabilities. I'm not a determinist. I believe in free will and people can make choices and people do make free choices. Um, but I am. I do take some comfort that there is a, a, a historical record, including in the United States, of periods in which degradation in all different types of societies gets followed by a type of renewal. And it doesn't mean going back to exactly what existed 
before. We're not going to go back to 1950s America, a period which, you know, socially, culturally, and economically was actually much more troubled <laughs> uh, than, than was realized at the time. But I do think we can have some confidence that we may not go back to something like that, and I'm not sure we would want to at this point in time. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there is some grounds for optimism in the sense that I think that a lot of these things are determined not by majorities, they're determined by creative minorities. And I think that to the extent that those who are worried about these sorts of things in society can adopt that mindset, which is not an isolationist mindset, which is not a not another yet another option which we're all going to opt into or whatever it happens to be. It's much more the idea that that history is driven by, not by majorities of the population but by people who take decisive action at particular periods of time and that might be harder in today's circumstances than it was before but it's not impossible. To bring this back, one of the things that Gurry suggests is our way out of this sort of thing is that we need new elites. And with both of the examples sort of positive in the Victorian era and negative in the Napoleonic, in Napoleonic France, we have new elites emerge. Mm -hmm. um, and we have them coming from different places, from, you know, the army in the case of Napoleon. Lord when Lord Acton is part of a new political class of influential Roman Catholics. When Lord Acton was born, I think the very year he was born, was the year that Catholics were given the right to vote in England. William Gladstone came out of an evangelical movement that was new. So there are, out of these emergent communities, these alternative sort of uh, folks that aren't represented in the current consensus, there can emerge new leadership. Um, and that's and that's a source for, for hope and also caution. Sam's point about uh, increasingly authoritarian regimes uh, may be the perfect segue here into our second story about uh, what happened recently at Barnard College. So we're not moving far from the Met Gala just over to Morningside Heights now in New York City. Barnard College, if you're not familiar with it, is the sister college of Columbia University. Uh, it was an all-women's liberal arts college that has for a, a long time in its history had a fairly sizable uh, Jewish population. It, it's not a Jewish school, but nonetheless was a welcoming place for Jews seeking a uh, fairly elite liberal arts education. And the story, uh, which comes to us from uh, Daniela Greenbaum Davis at The Federalist, uh, has to do with the COVID regime that exists at Barnard College, where what they had created was this app for which you can um, receive COVID-related alerts and report COVID-related symptoms if you've been uh, feeling symptoms like that. This is the way, and they want people to use the app and only the app. It's only the app that you could use. The appification of our society really distilled into one example here. And the problem of course, for observant Jews would be oh, there's roughly a day-long period where they're not going to be utilizing technology. And you get uh, this missive sent to Barnard students, but only to Jewish students, uh, which interesting that that email list even exists. Um, but Jewish students at Barnard receive an email from Cynthia Yang, who's the deputy chief of staff to the college president and the head of the college's pandemic response team uh, describing the new technology protocols for reporting COVID-19 uh, symptoms and participating in contact tracing. Uh, and then, according to uh, Daniela Greenbaum uh, Smith, uh, Davis, Daniela Greenbaum Davis, uh, this is where it all goes south. Quote from the email. Uh, we recognize that how you have practiced religious traditions in the past may not align with the use of technology during the high holidays or the Sabbath, but this year is paramount for the community's health and safety that you abide by Bar uh, the Barnard Pledge and follow the college's policies and procedures. So what Barnard was attempting to do, and they, they did relent on this fairly quickly, uh, which I guess is to, to their credit in following their great shame in mandating this in the first place— uh, that 
Well, that may be of how you you've been observant in the past, but now because of this pandemic, because of the advancement of technology in society, you now have to violate that in order to serve the secular gods that we are all now worshiping in the course of this pandemic. Is this is this just tipping towards a way that um, people who are religiously observant are just going to run headlong more and more often now into these regimes that are saying it doesn't matter how you may have practiced and it's you know it's 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 cute if you may want to do that on your own time but but these things are serious and you know I'm sorry if it violates the way that you practice your religion well if I might go first it's symptomatic I think of a view of let's call it small o orthodox religion that is increasingly prevalent in higher education and you know as well as some of the uh, the elites that we were talking about before that 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 essentially what you hold to is um, it's an interesting, cute thing, but it's fundamentally superstitious that religion is something that must yield to any other significant concern, whether it's health, whether it's national security. In other words, important goods which any society would would presumably want to take seriously – but the notion that religion itself is a good in the sense that religion is ultimately about every person's inquiry about the ultimate meaning of the universe, whether there is or is not a god or gods, and the implications of that for how we live our lives, that idea of religion which I think when you define it that way is extremely important and precisely why we protect religious liberty in the sense that we are free to pursue our knowledge of these things and then act in ways consistent with our conclusions about these things. That whole idea has clearly vanished from a good portion of progressive opinion, elite opinion, elite institutions in Western countries today so that religious concerns always get pushed down to the bottom of the list. And we saw this, we've seen this with other things to do with COVID, right? So remember those those states that were uh, allowing casinos and uh, tattoo parlors, alcohol, tattoo parlors and alcohol, store, alcohol stores to open, but you couldn't go to you couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to service, you couldn't go to mass, you couldn't go to synagogue, you couldn't go to mosque. Uh, <laughs> so, And that's actually very contrary to the way that the American experiment has understood these things because the reason why uh, we have this, this uh, very important amendment about religious liberty, it's not just about civic peace, it's not just about ensuring that people don't kill each other because of religious differences. It's also about respecting the good of religion as something good and fulfilling of people in themselves. And by the way, that protects agnostics and atheists just as much as it protects those who are religious believers. So, But this has completely been lost sight of, and it's replaced by this notion of religion. This is sort of – it's almost like an avatar from the past that enlightened people will at some point in the future, you Orthodox Jews out there, sometime in the future, you will be enlightened like us and you will understand that this is what reality is and you will understand that these quaint traditions from the past are precisely that. So it's a very worrying trend. As, as Danielle goes on to, to write in there that um, the, the situation was rectified a short while after the offending email, Cynthia Yang wrote again to apologize to say her email was, quote, written in haste and that it, quote, was not considerate in the way it should have been of each student's ability to practice and observe their religion. She had liaised with uh, Yonah Hain, the campus's rabbi. And she also misspelled his name in the communication that was then later sent out. 
uh, to create a plan that would enable the university to obtain the information it needs in real time without violating Jewish students' right to observe Shabbos. As Daniela points out in the piece, isn't that the kind of thing that should have happened at the beginning? But, of course, it wasn't because I think to Sam's point, um, it's just not a consideration that the uh, lead uh, you know, czar of the pandemic response team at Barnard College it is even thinking about, which is just somewhat gobsmacking at a university that has had a tradition of practicing Jews being such an important part of its history and culture. I think part of this is malice, but I think most of this is ignorance. And this is part of the product of the world we're living in today, where you can have major newspapers, you know, who are ignorant of what Easter celebrates. Mm -hmm. When you can have a society where, um, you know, uh, where religious convictions about the nature of hu human sexuality are reduced to caricatures of a crude homophobia or puritanism. Um, this is a society that fundamentally in, money in many ways does not understand. And part of this is this elite selection process, which selects against this sort of religious observance for a wide variety of reasons and the challenge that folks are going or that people with with strong religious convictions are going to have going forward is to articulate to the larger world in a way that they haven't in 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 the past although religious minorities always have mm -hmm. they've always yes. had to articulate and give a reasoned account for their beliefs. And that, that is difficult. A lot of people feel resentful that that is something that's put on them. But that's the reality we live in in the world today, um, for good or for ill. And the only way we're going to change that is if we give a reasoned account of our beliefs. And if we not only stand firmly in them, but find a way to address the world um, that gives such an account. Of course, the early Christians did this, right? Uh, we often think of the early Christians as being, you know, marginalized people on the outskirts of society, um, economically poor, but we know that's actually not true, that most of the early Christians were what we would call sort of um, – a relatively middle class, there are a fair number of them um, represented among the aristocracy. A lot of them were converts from Judaism. Uh, they were often very concentrated in uh, commercial towns, ports around the Mediterranean, etc. And they also took philosophy extremely seriously. We know, for example, that within the first century of Christianity, you have uh, Christians making philosophical reasoned arguments for their positions over and against the pagan philosophers, uh, Roman scholars, uh, Greek thinkers, etc. And they were actively engaged in saying, no, actually, we, our faith is reasonable. Our faith is not a superstition. That's precisely why it's different from your religions. Uh, and that was extremely attractive to a significant proportion of Roman, Heleno, Roman, Greek, Hellenic thought and culture at that particular time in history. And that's one of the things I think the challenges of modernity is for those who are, who are believers to be able to give, <laughs> what does Peter say, a reasoned account of why it is you believe what you believe so that you can't be just dismissed as, well, he's, he's, he's an evangelical because that's his background, or she's an Orthodox Jew because she was born into that and she doesn't know any different, etc. But that makes it more, I think Dan's point is exactly right, it makes it much more incumbent upon those of us who are religious believers to say, no, this is not superstition. If anything's superstitious, it's you. <laughs> Here's the reasons why I believe what I believe and I invite you to engage in a conversation with me, a serious conversation with me about 
the reasonability of my position as opposed to other positions. And unless a lot of religious leaders today in America are not particularly well-equipped to do that. Well, that, that may be the big problem. And, and to, to bring it around full circle, uh, the elite that we have in our society right now is not entirely without people of faith. It is not entirely without people who you know, live in the, the the right way to borrow if if it's a crude kind of rudimentary way to put uh, to point it out you know, that the Brookings success sequence right you know that you should mm-hmm. graduate from high school at minimum um, before you get married and you should get married before you have children and don't do those things out of order um, that most of the elites a live that way. And, you know, at least some of them are people of faith. But to borrow from Charles Murray's observation in Coming Apart, they don't preach what they practice. The problem is not right. that they don't practice what they preach, to go back to the, the point about hypocrisy. The problem is that they don't preach what they practice because the, the ethos pushes back against that kind of thing as a form of judgmentalism, that you don't want to tell people – that the way that they're living, quote, their truth is in somehow maybe not good and not fulfilling and won't lead to good things. I mean, we need to encourage that kind of elite to preach what they practice in addition to just living the right way by example in those right. cases. I mean, you, uh, Murray makes the point, I believe, that religion now has become a middle class phenomena in America, but also the West. If you go to the West more generally, if you go to your average Catholic parish in Paris, France on a given Sunday, you look around and what you see, you don't see many blue-collar people. You see a lot of middle-class people, the middle-class people working in middle-class professions, bankers, merchants in commerce, etc. And I, I think that's that tells us something. I think it, it speaks to, exactly to what you're saying, Eric, that there are many people who are living a particular life who don't subscribe to the AOC view of the world, who don't describe, subscribe to the, the type of view of religion that was expressed in this incident that happened last week, but they certainly don't seem very interested or confident about proclaiming that as something that's true for others to either accept or, or not to accept. And that's the point. one of the points of religious liberty, of course, is and religious tolerance is to enable us to have these types of discussions in a way that we can argue about what is true and not not let that slide into oppressing, let alone um, physically damaging other people. That's one of the points of religious liberty. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website at acton.org, please scroll down and look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to this podcast on any of the great podcast apps or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Uh, We're still, again, relatively new. So please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.